Christ Community Church is called by the God of all grace for the transforming of life in Middle Tennessee, spiritually, socially, and culturally, through the power of the gospel, from Franklin to the nations of the world, all for the glory of God. For more information, visit ChristCommunity.org. Good morning. It's great to see all of you here this morning, and I want to take the opportunity uh, as we get into God's Word this morning, as we continue in this series, The Stories We Tell, I want to pray for our children as they leave this morning, and I also want to welcome all of you who are visiting with us, perhaps your family members visiting from out of town, perhaps your college students returning from a semester. We're glad that you are here. I want to welcome all those who are joining us on the live stream as well, and those who are in B110 and 111. It is uh, great to be with you. I'm Pastor Randy Lovelace, and I've done things this morning that I think have been captured by video and will likely reappear in ways that I will not appreciate. But hey, it's just fun being a pastor that way. So uh, yes, I see that. Yes. Thank you for that. Uh, I now see my image being held up by small children. So, um, oh boy. Let's uh, begin this morning uh, with prayer, and we'll get going together. I just got nervous all of a sudden with those. I don't know what's going to happen. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, beautiful morning. We thank you that we can gather together as your people. Father, we thank you that you remind us in so many different ways that we are a people of stories. And there are stories that we tell each other. There are stories that we tell ourselves that really reveal our longings. And Father, we long for hope, but we acknowledge we're not good at it. Father, we thank you for our children because they remind us what you actually call all of us to be, like small children before you, ready and hopeful to learn and to receive. Lord, as we grow older, we're not very good at hoping and receiving. We pray for our children now as they go in their time of children's church. We pray that they would grow in faith. We pray that they would grow in their love for you. Those who lead them, may they lead them to the feet of Jesus. And as we now go into your word this morning, I pray you would feed us, strengthen us, be present with us because we desperately need you. We ask this in Jesus's mighty name, amen. This morning's passage is a brief one from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 23 to 25, and it holds uh, some unusual, an unusual word that only appears here in all of the New Testament and then only rarely in other uh, languages regarding the Old Testament. But it begins in 23, and he's calling his congregation to hope. He's calling them back to hope calling them specifically to hope in something that is an objective reality. And here's what he says, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he, that is Jesus, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. He's calling them to hope. The title of the sermon is Longing for Hope. And that is intentional because it seems odd to long for something like hope. Hope is something that we want to happen in the future. It can take on all different kinds of, of realities, but something that is not, we something hope will happen in the future. So we oftentimes want to be a people of hope, but we become cynics. We become realists. And so we, we wrestle with this idea of hope. And in one of the questions that I was asked this morning, and it was nerve wracking to receive a question from a child, Pastor Randy, why can we not see God? That is a profoundly important question, one which Jesus understood because he would pray for those of us who would believe, if you do believe, though we have not seen him, yet we still believe. The intersection of hope and cynicism is a very interesting intersection. And the movie, Miracle on 34th Street, has nothing to do with Jesus at all. Made in 1947, extremely popular. The man who played Kris Kringle won the Oscar nomination for his portrayal. Little Natalie Wood is the little girl named Susan. And her mother, Susan Walker, is a single mother divorced, raising her child in the city and working at Macy's. Nothing to do with Jesus. All to do with how do we reckon with this idea of Macy's and commercialism and is Santa Claus real or not? Not getting into any of that. But let's think about the film's storyline for just a minute. Though it has nothing to do with Jesus, it is profoundly at its heart uh, an issue of conversion, of transformation. And in fact, as I prepared for the entire series, I was overwhelmed by all of these films are films about transformation in some way, shape, or form. And so in the film, we have a, just a quick synopsis if you're not familiar with it. If you haven't seen it, I'm sure it'll be on tonight or soon to see. And I do think it's well worth watching. It's a, right between Thanksgiving and Christmas, you have the Thanksgiving Day Parade being put on by Macy's and they have a problem because they have a Santa who's drunk and who's an alcoholic, though they never use that phrase. It just conveniently is referred to in some way that we sort of push under the rug. And so Chris Kringle is, of course, dismayed by this man's behavior playing Santa and in watching how Chris Kringle handles the situation, uh, Susan Walker, see, or rather her mother, uh, Doris Walker sees him and says, well, why don't you consider being our Santa? And so he does. Now, what we find out very quickly is, is that Doris Walker, being a woman who is divorced and now raising her daughter, clearly struggles with the idea of hope. So much so that she teaches her daughter to not believe in such things as fairy tales and Santa Clauses and in some ways, trains her out of her imagination. And so what happens is she comes confronted with this problem because Chris Kringle isn't just playing the character of Santa. He actually claims to be the Santa Claus, the Chris Kringle. She thinks he's crazy. She wants to have him mentally and psychologically evaluated. 
And so she calls in a specialist. The specialist, of course, he finds the fact that Chris Kringle actually passes all the exam, but still thinks this man needs to be committed to Bellevue Hospital in lower Manhattan. Everybody scoffs, everybody laughs. It gets to the point where he has to go to court to and then be defended by Doris Walker's next door neighbor, Fred Gailey, who is a lawyer and actually is kind of sweet on Doris Walker and her daughter. He ends up, Chris Kringle ends up rooming with Fred Gailey. And he is amazed that this man seems very genuine. He seems to have integrity. His mind is together. He doesn't know how to figure out, how, do I have actually have hope in this guy? Or is this guy just a complete charade? And so you begin to see over and over again, can we hope or are we just going to be satisfied with our cynicism? So they make a pact, he and Chris Kringle. Fred Gailey's gonna work on the cynicism of Doris Walker, the mother, and Chris Kringle's gonna work on the, the cynical lack of imagination that he sees in the heart of Susan, little Susie, the daughter. And if you're familiar with the story, it ends up going to court. Chris Kringle successfully defends himself with Fred Gailey's help that he is, in fact, uh, Chris Kringle. And as the film goes on to the end, one of the things they realize is, well, what do I think about hope? How do I understand what's happening and lurking in my heart with regard to the cynicism that I feel about human beings in general? And maybe with good reason. And we have to argue with ourselves. But what becomes clear is that even though they, in the end, they believe and have hope that what Chris Kringle is claiming about himself, even they get to the point where it is true, it is clear, it is not based on something fanciful, something abstract. They begin to believe Chris Kringle because of who he is, not just what he claims to be. And they see him interact with other people. They, they experience his interaction with them. They see his complete lack of gall, his genuineness, his love, his caring, his kindness, which is genuine and not just an act. And what we begin to see is that the miracle on 34th Street isn't at all about whether Santa is real or not, is if there's something true about having hope versus being cynical. No, that has nothing to do with Jesus. It is profoundly at the heart of the Christian faith. Do we hope that the Jesus that we celebrate in his first advent is the Jesus that we celebrate in his promise to return again which is what the song Joy to the World is really about. Isaac Watts was not writing about the first advent in Joy to the World. He's writing about the second coming. Is that which we celebrate in the song Joy to the World, is that just fanciful hope? Are we just suckers? And are we just going to be cynical and this just becomes feel-good religion? This needs to be a place where we're honest about that question. If you are a Christian and you're not asking that question, let me encourage you to ask whether Jesus is real or not. 
Because there's something profound about the human heart. We take it for granted, the truths which we once held. You've heard it said that the gospel, perhaps, the gospel is not just the entry door into the Christian faith. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian faith. Put, said another way. Asking the question of whether I believe Jesus to be a real person is not just something we ask for those and ask of those who don't believe. I would ask all of us, myself included, do I believe that when I stand before you that Jesus is real? Because I'll be honest with you, being cynical feels a lot more real sometimes, right? I mean, I'm over 40 and uh, way over 40, but okay, so I'm over 40. And, um, and one of my favorite comedians uh, is a comedian by the name of Tom Papa. I don't know if you've heard of Tom Papa before, um, but he's, he's pretty good. Here's what he says about being over 40. He says, you're over 40. I get it. You're over 40, miserable. You're angry. I get it. That's 20 years of trying to be a grown-up, 20 years of going to the same job, working with the same people that you do not like. He says, you know what? You're over 40, you've earned it. You've earned it. Dead friends, dead relatives, dead dreams, dead dreams. You're over 40 and you don't even remember what your dreams actually were. And when you look into the mirror, you realize those dreams are not coming true. They are not coming true. And that feels very real to me. But there's something else about cynicism, whether it's about being over 40 or whether it's about the Christian faith. Is there something profoundly going on in the human heart? And Brene Brown writes about it. You know, cynical philosophy has led to this idea that we are to have a disposition of disbelief in the sincerity or the goodness of human motives and actions. A healthy and robust disbelief in the sincerity or goodness of human motives and actions. Well, yeah. I'm cynical about myself, if I'm honest. Bernie Brown says something very interesting, though, about cynicism. She says, cynicism often masks anger, fear, feelings of inadequacy, and even despair. It's a safe way for us to send out emotional trial balloons and if something doesn't go over well, we'll just make a joke of it and make other people feel stupid for thinking differently. The cynic might argue that someone who clings to hope is a sucker or ridiculously earnest. This type of thought is armor, armor that typically is trying to cover over pain. As one theologian said, Despair or cynicism is the belief that tomorrow will be just like today. To which Brene Brown says, that is devastating. The writer of Hebrews is writing to his congregation in the midst of severe trial and persecution they are sitting in the very same seats that we're sitting in. 
They had not seen Jesus, but they had heard the stories. They had received witness testimony. They're now in the middle of a long sermon, which Hebrews is. And right in the heart of it, the pastor looks at his congregation and he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That word wavering means without turning to the left or the right. And this is the only place in the entire Bible where that word is used. To have a hope in our confession of Jesus Christ in an unwavering fashion, for he, he says, that is Jesus, for he who, is faith, who promised is faithful. And then he says, once you have this hope that is not wavering in our confession of Jesus Christ, who promised and is faithful, then we are to turn to one another and to encourage one another to go deeper into Jesus. Are you real? Do we remember, Christian, if you are a Christian, that God can actually handle our questions, holding him by the lapels, as it were, and saying, are you real? And looking at our own cynicism and saying, it's easier for me to believe that nothing is going to change tomorrow and to simply dress it up with Jesus talk. Because what is profound about the idea of hope right here in the heart of Hebrews is not hope in a doctrine. It's not hope in a building. It's not hope in other Christians. It's hope in the person of Jesus. You can have hope and you can have a lot of belief about doctrines, but hold at bay whether you believe Jesus to be true. This is a question which has been often asked and debated. We must wrestle deeply with not just the Jesus who went to the cross, who he said, for the joy set before him, took the cross for our sin. Yes and amen, but we can't see him. And we can't make him magically appear. He said that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He said that when he leaves, not only do we receive the forgiveness of sins if we believe in him by faith, but we receive his presence, the presence of his Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And the scriptures say that when Jesus comes into the life of a human being and into the life of the church, the Holy Spirit is poured out. But we can't point to it. But the question still begs to be asked, do we believe what Jesus claimed about himself and what he came to do? And then joy to the world, what he promises to do in the future. Is our hope in the person. Now, I don't often quote C.S. Lewis so much as I have these last couple of weeks, but it fits. Lewis asked this question in the entirety of his academic life and as he wrote about the person and work of Jesus. And he said this, perhaps you're familiar with it. To believe that God exists is to believe that you as a person now stand in the presence of God as a person. 
You are no longer faced with an argument that demands your assent, but with a person who demands your, and may I say it, our confidence. Lewis, among many other thinkers, essentially applied this idea that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. I would suggest that is also at the heart of Miracle on 34th Street. The character of Santa Claus, the character of Chris Kringle, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the real thing. Profoundly at the heart of our faith is the same question. But if you're a wise debater, you will ask a further question. Okay, fine. I understand that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. But the question is, if I believe he's Lord, is he, can I believe that the way he's portrayed in the scriptures is true? Is the way the Bible portrays Jesus as Lord true? That he claimed to be a savior and redeemer? that he died on a cross and was raised on the third day so that our sins might be forgiven and we might have eternal life with him. Lewis, of course, anticipated this. And as a philologist and as a literary scholar, he recognized that this question must be dealt with. And he said, there is simply no other explanation for the New Testament other than that it is true. Because if it is fable, it is the most unimaginative fable ever written. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't use that kind of language. The characters are not portrayed that way. And by the way, it's written by Jews. Jews who would not have believed such things unless it were true because it would have cost them their entire livelihood, their entire social status. And it's not a fable or a novel because they didn't have such things. Nothing like the New Testament existed. And so he said, it simply does not work itself out. He says his followers were all Jews. That is, they belonged to that nation, which of all others was most convinced that there was only one God, that there could not possibly be another. It is very odd that this horrible invention about a religious leader should grow up among the one people in the whole earth, least likely to make such a mistake. On the contrary, we get the impression that none of his immediate followers or even of the New Testament writers embraced the doctrine of Jesus at all easily. When we read the New Testament, we come, if we allow it to speak on its own, come to the conclusion that you would never write such things unless you were convinced that the person of Jesus is who he said he was and is. So the question before us, every day when we're honest, whether you are young or whether you're young or old, is this question, is Jesus true? Is he reliable? Is he Lord? And what would it look like for us as a church, individually and corporately, to be saturated, saturated with this question to which we peer into the scriptures and we see that the one portrayed there, the person of Jesus, claims to be and lives out the Lord's life as one who is loving, merciful, 
and gracious and is not surprised or thwarted by our cynicism or our questions. To be saturated in honesty that we have a hard time believing. Lord, help me in my unbelief. To ask the Lord, Lord, please demonstrate by your word and spirit that you are living and active. Because if we are not willing to ask that question and lean in hard, do we need the church, Jesus, which you say you came to die for? If we don't lean in hard to that, then much of this just becomes dressed up religiosity. and We become saturated in moral goodness. I don't want moral goodness. I don't want religious responsibilities. I need a redeemer. You and I need a redeemer who said he is Lord, who peers into our dark hearts, our cynical, unbelieving, hopeless, broken hearts that sin against him and sin against one another and we're armoring up and we don't, we don't want to put ourselves out there with the possibility that you're real because if you're real, that means I need to be vulnerable and I need to get on my knees and acknowledge that you are Lord and I am not. Let's lean into that at Christmas and realize this reality about the power of hope. We are called to hope in the one who claimed to be Lord, who was faithful and did everything which he promised and who now says he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, who says that he will come again. This is a hope which we are to have a hope which we need ignited and sustained by the Spirit, undergirded and founded on the Word. But know this, hope is not eternal. Faith is not eternal. Love is, because faith and hope will give way when we see Jesus again face to face. This is what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Because faith and hope in the person of Christ will give way to his glorious beauty again, to which John declares church in Revelation. Then I saw an angel who showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. This is our hope. So Merry Christmas. God is good, and he, all he asks of us is our need of him. Glory be to God. 
unveil my cynicism and replace it with a hope of the person of Jesus. Help me, Lord. Help us, Lord, in our unbelief. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this hope which you call us to. You call us to this hope for your servant to be unwavering in it. But Lord, we are wavering. We want to turn to the left and to the right. It feels so much safer to be cynics and to armor up. But Lord, we ask of you by your mercy and grace, take apart our cynicism with your love and give us a view of the glorious, victorious, beautiful Jesus that our hope would be made complete in him alone. In Jesus' name, amen.